Today's scripture reading is from the uh, prophecy that God gave to the prophet Micah. I'll be reading chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Morasheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place, and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob, and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Micah lived in a small town named Moresheth in the southern kingdom of Judah, about the same time as Isaiah. And both the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel had split long ago, and both had been violating their covenant with the God of Israel. So Micah warned that God would bring the big bad empire of Assyria to take out the northern kingdom and come ravage Jerusalem. And he also warned that after them, Babylon would bring an even greater destruction. Like all the prophets, Micah spoke on God's behalf to accuse Israel, or as he puts it in chapter 3, I am filled with strength, with the Spirit of God, with justice and power to declare how Israel has rebelled. And so most of this book explores Micah's accusations and his warnings of God's judgment on Israel. But Micah also had a message of hope that countered these warnings about the restoration God would bring on the other side of his judgment. And if you dive into the book with us, you'll see how this works. So the first two sections of the book develop Micah's accusations and warnings against Israel and its leaders. So part one opens with the poetic description of God appearing over Israel, just like he did at Mount Sinai. There's fire and smoke and earthquake. But he hasn't come to make a covenant this time. He's come to bring his judgment on Israel for over 500 years of rebellion. Micah goes on to name all of these towns and cities in Israel that are the culprits of all of this rebellion, God's coming for them. But why exactly? So Micah picks a fight with Israel's leaders. He says that they've become wealthy through theft and greed. He alludes to the story of Ahab stealing a family vineyard from Naboth in 1 Kings chapter 21. But also it's because Israel's prophets are corrupt. They're quite happy to offer promises of God's protection to anyone who can afford to pay them. No, Micah says, God has withdrawn his protection from Israel. In the second section of accusations, Micah describes even more how Israel's leaders and prophets have together committed grave injustice. They run the land through bribery, they bend justice to favor the wealthy, and the poor are deprived of their land, their security, and their hope. And all of this is a violation of the laws of the Torah, which declare it illegal to sell land that belongs to families, even if they're poor. And so we find out that God's judgment is going to take the form of an oppressive nation that comes to take out the northern kingdom and Jerusalem and its temple, which will be reduced to ruins. Now these are very stiff warnings, and they're not the final word. Each of these warning sections is concluded with a striking promise of hope. So first is a poem about how God is like a shepherd who's going to rescue and regather his flock. 
which is the remnant of his people. And he's going to bring them all back to good pasture and become their king once more. The second warning section is concluded by picking up this image of the ruined Jerusalem temple. And Micah says this won't be permanent. One day God is going to exalt his temple. He's going to fill it with his presence and fill the city with the remnant of his people. And so God's purpose is to make Israel the meeting place of heaven and earth so that all nations will stream to Jerusalem where God becomes the king of all the nations, bringing peace to the earth. Now, these two concluding poems of hope, they're very powerful. And the next section of the book actually develops them further in a beautifully designed series of poems that are entirely about the future hope of Israel and the nations. So we learn that after the Assyrian attack, Israel will be conquered and exiled to Babylon. But from there, God will restore his people and bring them back to their land. And then we learn that in the new Jerusalem, a new messianic king from the line of David will come. He'll be born in Bethlehem and then rule in Jerusalem over the restored people of God. Finally, in this messianic kingdom of God, the faithful remnant of God's people will become that blessing among the nations. But at the same time, God will bring his final justice and remove evil from his world. The final section of the book returns to this pattern of warning followed by hope that we saw in the first parts of the book. So Micah exposes again the unjust economic practices of Israel's leaders and how it's destroying the land and its people. And here Micah offers his famous words that summarize what it means for Israel to follow their God. He has told you, O human, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. This is exactly what Israel has not been doing, and so they will come to ruin. However, the book ends with another powerful note of hope. Israel is personified as an individual who's sitting alone in shame and defeat. It's a clear image of Israel's destruction and exile. And this individual is watching for God's mercy, and he begs God to listen and forgive. But why? Why should God listen to and forgive this faithless and rebellious people? Well, the poet offers two reasons. First, he says, because of God's character. Who is a God like you who forgives sin and pardons rebellion? He knows that God's mercy is more powerful than his anger or his judgment. And the second reason is because of God's promises. He says, you will stay true to Jacob and show covenant love to Abraham as you swore so long ago. Now, these are the final words of the book. They're an allusion to God's covenant promises to Abraham and his family all the way back in the book of Genesis, that all nations would find God's blessing through Abraham's family. But to become a blessing to the nations, Israel must first be faithful to their God. And so this explains this back and forth between judgment and hope in the book of Micah. If God's going to bless the nations through Israel, then he must confront and judge the evil among his people. But his judgment is what leads to hope. Because God's covenant love and promise are more powerful than human evil, and his ultimate purpose is not to destroy, it's to save and redeem. Or as the concluding lines of the book put it, God delights in covenant love, so he will again show compassion. He will trample our evil he will toss our sins into the depths of the sea. And that's what the book of Micah is all about. Good morning, church. Thanks for being here with us today. Uh, my name's Rodney, and uh, yeah, I'm grateful to have you as we dive into a new uh, series this morning. We are 
Uh, we picked the book of Micah a while back, and the reason, as you might have picked up um, from the, that little overview video, was very intentional. Uh, we, we try, we value the church calendar a good deal, and we're a young church. As we grow each year, we try to value and incorporate the church calendar a little bit more and a little bit more. And the reason is because we recognize um, that those saints that came before us um, put a great deal of an intentionality into, and, and the Spirit led them as they formed the church calendar. And they weren't distracted by Angry Birds or uh, Netflix. They put a great deal of thought into how can we live and organize the church in such a way that the people of God will continually have their eyes pointed to God. And so uh, for us, Advent is a big deal. And this year, we didn't just want to make Advent season a big deal, but we wanted to be intentional. And how do we even prepare people to have the right mindset as we enter Advent going into December? And I felt like Micah was really a perfect way to do that. Um, the first part of Micah is pretty grim, uh, but the second part is incredibly hopeful. And it speaks uh, the book of, of, of the one that Micah is ultimately written about, which is Jesus, that these first couple of chapters are heavy. And they remind us of our need for a savior. Um, but then as we enter Advent, we'll spend a great deal of time celebrating the promise of God um, that Micah reiterates of the savior who we await and who will come. And so this morning, we will be in Micah chapter one. And again, Micah chapter one is, is heavy and it's, it's filled with anguish and it can be difficult to read. And uh, God in his foreknowledge put this, uh, put it upon me to preach Micah one. Uh, the morning after I would host a sleepover at my house for my, for my daughter. Uh, I read Psalm 6 this week, and David cries out in Psalm 6, From my depths, how long, O Lord? And, and I'm convinced, like, David's might have had, his daughter might have had a sleepover that night. That might have been the very thing that David is speaking of, how long? And uh, I'm just kidding. It was a lot of fun. But um, I, am, I am maybe needing a little more coffee this morning than usual. Micah comes with um, a great deal of weightiness because the people of God were in great need of salvation. Micah prepares us for Advent in that way, and then it starts off um, in verses 1 through 2 through the warning that judgment is coming. But in three through chapters 3 through 5, we'll find that restoration is also coming and promised for God's people. I want to start this morning by taking a few minutes to look at verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth, in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Let's pray for our time. Father, thank you for this day and the opportunity to come together here and be with your people and to open up your word together. Uh, Lord, we all come here with a great deal of uh, just a great number of things on our hearts and on our minds. Uh, we have been stretched thin this week and pulled in all kinds of directions. And uh, I ask for myself and just for everybody here um, that you might, uh, Holy Spirit, come and settle our hearts and ease our minds, uh, relieve uh, all the pressures that we feel for all kinds of things. And for this, small, this time here, uh, might our hearts just be fully uh, open to your word and might our minds be committed to thinking about heavenly things. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This verse, uh, verse 1, seems somewhat simple, but as we begin this new book, uh, there's a great deal of information within this first verse that has a lot of significance for where we're going. Number one, in this first verse, we find the context that's taking place. Micah is from Moresheth, 
which was about 25 miles southwest of Jerusalem on the borderlands between Judah and the Philistines. This means the prophet Micah was much like the prophet Amos and that he was a man from the country who had been sent to the cities to bring the word of the Lord. Other than this detail, the truth is we know very little about Micah personally, but this verse does tell us a great deal about the duration of his ministry. This verse shows us that Micah served as a prophet during the reign of three different kings. And while we don't know a ton about Micah, we know a significant amount about these three kings. His ministry started under the rule of Jotham. Jotham reigned from 749 to 733. Like his father before him, Jotham feared the Lord. However, unlike his father, his reign did not end in disgrace. Jotham's father, Uzziah, followed the Lord, but in the end, his ministry was cut short. His reign was cut short as a result of pride and bitterness. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 26, 16 through 23, you can read about how his father's, how his father's reign ended um, at the word of the Lord. Despite Jotham's faithfulness, however, the people of God continued to spiral downward in the midst of his rule. They embraced idolatry, and even in the midst of his faithful reign, they continued to bow down to idols, and unfortunately, sadly, this included his son, Ahaz. Ahaz was the son of Jotham, and he was the second king to reign during the ministry of Micah. He served from 733 to 713. Ahaz was nothing like his father. His shortcomings far exceeded that of his grandfather as well. He erected idols all throughout Judah and worshipped them. He even sacrificed his own sons as burnt offerings to pagan gods. He led his people further down the path of idolatry and destruction, even taking the radical step of closing the temple. In 2 Chronicles 28, we see that God used the Syrians and the Assyrians, as you saw in the little intro video, to humble both he and Judah. And then we have Hezekiah. He was one of the sons of Ahaz. He was like the lucky son that didn't get sacrificed to a pagan god. He was the third and final king under which Micah served. He reigned from 713 to 684, and by God's grace, Hezekiah rejected his father's wickedness, and he embraced the faith of his grandfather, Jotham. In his first year as king, he reopened the temple, and he challenged the people of Judah to tear down their places of idol worship, which scripture tells us they did in 2 Chronicles 29. Hezekiah was not a perfect king, but he loved the Lord, and he tried to obey him, and scripture tells us that God blessed him for this reason. Based off of the reigns that we see within these three kings, we can draw a couple of interesting facts about Micah's ministry. Number one, he served for more than 30 years as a prophet. That's a long ministry among the prophets. That's a long ministry among any form of ministry. Yet this book, despite his long tenure, is one of the smaller prophetic letters. It's called one of the minor prophets. This book stands at seven chapters, which is really small when we consider that a prophecy like the book of Isaiah is 66 chapters. The reason for Micah's brevity is that this book has a very unique format, as do all of the minor prophets. Like most of them, Micah simply provides the essence of the message that he preached throughout the entirety of his ministry. So these seven chapters are kind of this summary culmination of what he had been saying and teaching for this entire 30-plus years. The first two chapters are a summary of the overall message that he preached for those years, 
that being the threefold message, you are sinning, God calls you to repent, and he promises judgment if you don't. Micah served Judah and Israel during some good times and some treacherous times. That's the other thing we see through those three kings. We see this kind of roller coaster of different seasons, different, no matter the political climate, like Micah's ministry and his call remain the same. Both in these times of good and these times of bad, these times of chaos and these times where things seem steady, we see that the sinful hearts of man stayed on the same track, that being headed toward idolatry. There was a season of intensified treachery under Ahaz for sure. And surely much of this letter is speaking of the events that happened in that season. But overall, we learn from the reign of these three kings that apart from Christ, humanity is bound towards its own destruction, and it does not matter what, old, what earthly leader is in place. This is, the this is the trajectory of the human heart apart from the work of Jesus. Both in seasons of good kings and bad, an earthly, earthly king is a comforting figure. But the point of Micah, specifically the second half, is that our hope is found only in a heavenly king. And this, so this morning, let's consider what this text teaches us about our need for such a king. We'll look at verses 2 through 4. Hear, you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth, all that is in it. And let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. Micah here is not in the mood for engaging introductions or kind flatteries. He gets straight to the point, and his words are shocking. Most letters that we read in Scripture, they start with an introduction, something comforting, some form of greeting, but Micah will have none of this. He says that you have sinned against the Almighty God, taking part in all kinds of wickedness, and now God is coming to clean house. This language is apocalyptic. And apocalyptic language in Scripture is used only in the most extreme circumstances. But the destruction that had taken place with the fall of Israel in 722, and that would take place during the fall of Judah in 586, surely deserved such language. He describes the treading of high places, meaning the places where idols have been erected will be smashed under the feet of the Lord, for he is just and he will share his glory with no one. And in verse 5 and through 7, all this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And, and what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards. And I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All of her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire and all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. Here, Micah provides a list of the charges which he brings against the people, the reason for which his justice is due and is right. He says that God's judgment is coming as a result of the sins of Jacob. The term Jacob here is used as a synonym for the entire people of Israel. They had sinned against the Lord through worshiping other gods. Scripture tells us that the current pattern of idolatry 
was not something new. As he alluded to in the video, we're talking about five years of unfaithfulness and pointing our eyes towards other saviors. This current pattern could be traced even to Kings 11, 1 Kings 11. We see in that text that the old, at the old, in his old age, Solomon embraced idol worship. And the Lord spared Solomon from judgment because of his promise to David. And some believe that the book of Ecclesiastes is evidence of repentance at the end for Solomon, but that's a different issue to discuss altogether. But the ruined legacy of Solomon had generational consequences. His son, Rehoboam, 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 there he goes, man. I just ignored my rule. You always just speak quickly and confidently, and nobody will know the difference. But this one tripped me up all week. Continued the idol worship of his father, and he was responsible for the kingdom being split in two. Israel was thus created as a result of his sin and pride. And this is ultimately the legacy of his father, Solomon. As we consider that, as we consider, you know, even looking at the kings, considering Solomon's uh, idol worship and how it ultimately affected his son and led to the present day where we are here in Micah, legacy means a great deal for the Christian. Legacy, who we are, our ability to stay faithful to God even in the midst of struggle, to admit wrongs, to stay humble and obedient and dependent on the Lord, it doesn't just affect our life, but it affects life that comes after us, after we're gone from this earth. That's worth taking a moment to pause and to consider as we see how the people of God got to where they are today. The sins of Solomon and his son snowballed to the time of Micah, and God is preparing to bring judgment on Israel as a result. Because the kings aren't ultimately responsible, but the people as well. Like a prostitute, Judah and Israel gave themselves away to foreign gods in order to receive momentary pleasure, momentary comfort, but they did it at the cost of their very souls. In verses 8 and 9, we see that this has affected Micah a great deal. For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable, and it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people to Jerusalem. Micah might come across really harsh here in, in chapter 1, but he's not hardened and detached from the people. He's broken. He loves these people. He loves this city. As we spend time in the book of Micah over the, over the next couple of months, this is important to understand. The truth is that he has come to a place of utter despair for the sins of the people whom he loves, but he also has a sincere desire for justice. And these two things do not contradict one another, but in that we see these two elements of who God is, being perfectly loving and perfectly just. And in the book of Micah, we see these two things come together and play out in the ultimate hope that we have that is the gospel. That God so loved the world that he gave his only son to live a perfect life, to die a brutal death, so that there would no longer be condemnation for us who are guilty, but everlasting joy in Christ. God had initiated a covenant with Israel on Mount Sinai. And in his grace, the Lord prepared a covenant that not only obligated the people, but also obligated himself. God promised that he would provide for Israel. He would protect them. That he would meet all of their physical and spiritual needs. 
He promises that he'll give them farms and cities and provide for every tangible thing they would ever need. In return, the people promised to obey God. Two weeks ago, during our final catechism series, we read an important word from Christ found in Matthew 22, 34 through 40, when it said this. But when the Pharisees heard that they had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. As we discussed, Jesus does not contradict the covenant of God from Mount Sinai, but what he's doing here at the end of Matthew is he's getting to the core of what that covenant was all about. God told Israel to be loyal to him. And the first four commandments are centered around that command to be loyal to God. Commandments one through four, which the kids are studying today, worship God alone, do not make idols, do not desecrate God's name, honor the holy day. Like when, when Jesus says the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God, this doesn't co contradict the commandments that were given to God's people. That's what the whole first four commandments are about. Worship him alone. Don't make idols. Don't desecrate his name and honor his holy day. In Matthew, Jesus is making clear the point that that's what those first four verses all, are all about, that you love the Lord your God with your heart, your mind, and your soul. That the point this was the point of the word that God gave to Israel. Unfortunately, throughout most of history at that point, Israel had directly disobeyed those commands regarding loyalty to God. They didn't worship God alone. They did make a great deal of idols. They did desecrate God's name, and they did not honor his holy day. And the other six commandments are centered around obedience to God. Love God and live according to the way that he calls us to live by living lives of honor. Kind of summarizing, 5 through 10, honor your parents, honor life, honor marriage, honor integrity, honor truth, honor your neighbor. The first four have a great deal to do with, like, look to God, love God, be loyal to God, and then live out of accordance of that loyalty to him. As Christians, honor matters because it reflects our very love for God. Jesus says, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself, honor your neighbor, live a life that reflects the love for God that you have. And Israel had not done this. They had rejected loyalty to God, and therefore the way that they lived did not reflect the commandment of God. Jesus says that all of the law is reflected in these two commandments, to love God or to be loyal to him, and to love your neighbor by being obedient to God. The rest of chapter 1, verses 10 through 16, give us some specific examples of the ways in which the individual communities had failed to obey God's commands. In 10 through 16, he lists specific cities, all the little towns around, and the specific things they had done. Each people are unique in the idols that they tend to worship, and this truth is no different today. When humans get together, we are prone to create idols and defend the idols of our particular choosing, whether they're religious or licentious. And if God is not on his throne, 
then this makes a great deal of sense. There's nothing more important in this world than myself if God is not on his throne. I truly am the center focus of my story, and my own purpose is ultimately to fulfill the momentary desires of my heart if God is not on his throne, because tomorrow I die. Many people view the world this way. And like we see here amongst Israel, many people claim to love God, but the actual testimony of their life reveals that they also live this way, that religion is a form of parachute that is there just in case, but they ultimately are the center of their own universe. And God had called Israel to live in a different way, to be loyal to him and to live differently as a result, and he calls us to the same thing today to be loyal to God, to give him our heart, our mind, and our soul, and to live as a reflection of who he is by following his commands. Because love is a feeling that is felt by the redeemed and the unredeemed. Love is not only known by Christians, but even those apart from Christ know the feeling of love when they hold that new baby, when they lose a dear friend. These feelings are felt throughout humanity. But for the unredeemed, us apart from Christ, love naturally flows in a different direction. It flows to self and idols. That's our natural disposition apart from Jesus. Love for self leads me to value self-preservation and self-service above all else. And love for idols leads me to be loyal to them and to be in bondage by them. And this is what Micah was observing. This is what all of this book this is the audience he's talking to, which includes us, if we're honest. This is what he was observing, and it, it, and it could easily be the description of anyone who takes an honest look at our world today, as Dustin was alluding to. However, God was not unaware of this propensity of man. He was not unfamiliar with this, and his, through his mercy, he has given us the ability to love him by the power of his spirit. In 2 Timothy 1, 6-7, Paul reminds Timothy of this when he says, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. This is, this is not easy for people. We all often do have a spirit of fear that keeps us from doing that which we should. We don't always have self-control. And we tend to lean on our own strength. And when we finally get tired of that because it's worthless, we just either fall into utter despair or give in to utter license and just live as we would. And this, we see this kind of combination of people who have built these idols as this place of safe security or who are just fully invested in living the way they want. This is kind of the position of God's people in this place. And here, Timothy, in the midst of, of struggling a great deal with some personal things, Paul gives him this encouragement that we've been given the power of love and self-control through the power of the Holy Spirit. I've, I've struggled with this a bit the last few weeks, if I'm honest. I often, when I read this verse in Timothy, I often wish I was like Paul. Like, Paul is just bold. 
man. Like Paul's not afraid of anybody. He's not afraid of anything. He's loving, but he is loving. And at the same time, he will come at you with that which is true. No, you know, not holding anything back. Now, I'm not really like Paul at all in that way. I'm more like Timothy. There's a reason that Paul's saying this to Timothy. Timothy had significant responsibility, yet he was often timid. And uh, in First and Second Timothy, Paul challenges Timothy at least 25 times to be strong, to not avoid confrontation, to be bold, not forsaking the gifts that God had given him. And what was the basis for this loving challenge? He said, God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and of love and self-control. In other words, we are not called to be lovers of self, but through the power of the Spirit, our love doesn't flow to self and idols, it flows to God and neighbor. Love for God leads me to value both loyalty and freedom. And love for neighbor empowers me to be affectionate and hospitable. As we close this morning, I want to just uh, encourage you not to leave this sanctuary and retreat to the temples of lesser gods. Whether it's uh, the temple that you can hold in your hand and you keep in your back pocket, or whether it's any of the other place that you're tempted to find um, solace and uh, momentary happiness. And instead, embrace, embrace the love of God. Commit to, to being with him and to taking your struggles and your shortcomings to him, to putting it all out on the table to him and perhaps to the people of God whom he has called you to live alongside. When we do this, when we retreat to the temples of these lesser gods that still exist today and they're just more advanced and they're more sophisticated, we find ourselves often drifting toward showing more loyalty to them than the one who redeemed us. Like how often when we really look and identify, what is it that keeps me from spending time with the Lord? What is it that keeps me from being in the Word? What is it that keeps me from resting in the assurance, the good news that God has given me? Whatever it is that does keep us from that, but we can identify that thing, oftentimes that's become a lesser God. That's become the very idol that we unknowingly, but we're not quite as blatant as they were then. Like the enemy's got a lot more sophisticated and not making it so obvious, not so taboo. But if it keeps us from God, if it keeps us from living out of the identity, out of who we are, well, then it's just as effective as the crude, you know, idol that was built in Micah's day. Israel did this when they put their hope primarily in kings and armies and not on the holy God. They thought their nationality would save them. But here in Micah, they find themselves facing the judgment of the Lord. As Christ followers, our ultimate allegiance is not to a king. It's not to an object. It's not to whatever gives us momentary happiness here. Our ultimate allegiance is the hope and love that is reflected in Jesus Christ our true king. He's the one who's, who is worthy of our full affections, and he is the one for whom Micah writes to point us towards. This morning, I just want to uh, take a few moments to pray to this end. Um, I just want to invite you this morning to really consider, 
Um, and not from a place of, of shame, not from a place of um, destruction. Like, you've been given a, a spirit of, of hope. You've been given through the Lord Jesus Christ. You no longer are one who has to live in fear. You get to, the, the idol, the thing that keeps you from the Lord, like, he knew that and has put that thing to death. And it, it no longer is, when, when the Lord looks upon you, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. So because of that, we have the freedom. We don't have a spirit of fear. We can call that thing out on the carpet and put it to death. And that we might no longer turn to it. We might run to the Father who welcomes us. So this morning, I just want to challenge you in that way. What, is, what, is, what are the things that we're prone to worship? What are the things that we're prone to give more of our heart and our soul to than the Lord who is worthy of all that we have? Because that is our natural trajectory. And even as a redeemed people, we still find that struggle within our flesh. Now, the good news of the gospel is that that struggle no longer alienates us from God because, as Mike is going to tell us, God would intervene through Jesus Christ. But we still, we still fight for that loyalty, we still fight not his loyalty is perfect and never-ending, but our loyalty can be fleeting. We can be distracted by whatever shiny object comes by. And this morning, I just want to pray um, that uh, the Spirit might open our eyes to what that is and empower us to put it to death this day. Would you pray with me to that end? Lord, as we, uh, as we consider the struggles of uh, the people of Israel uh, that Micah is referring to, um, Lord, they can seem—they uh, can seem so extreme. Like, how could they? You had done so much for them. You had been there for them. You had um, brought them through. Like you, you over and over again, you were faithful. How could they be so unfaithful? Lord, I admit that uh, is my natural reaction. And I acknowledge that um, I'm incredibly naive sometimes um, to just the, the status of my own heart, my own flesh. Lord, I know uh, that the truth is uh, I would be, have been right there with them, and I am right there with them um, quite often uh, when, my, um, when my satisfaction is found um, in that which is apart from you. Lord, I ask this morning uh, that you would help us to be a people um, who are aware of those things uh, that, uh, that pull us away from you, that we might be able to um, identify and acknowledge um, the false idols in our own life. And Lord, I ask um, that uh, you, even this day, would, we would make those clear, but then you would empower us um, to find... Uh, to, to go to you for strength, to go to you with those very things that you might uh, put them to death in our life. And Lord, as we wrestle, as we wrestle uh, with these realities uh, for the rest of our days, I pray um, that you might uh, make the gospel more and more known uh, to our hearts and our minds. Lord, because of you and your great faithfulness and goodness, our shortcomings are not the ultimate measure of us. We thank you that this is true. We ask for your help this day that we might be a, a, a people who live 
in such a way that reflects the holiness um, that you have granted us. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.